The Quiet Carriage, the show about books and their authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and sponsored by Castlemaine's signature bookstore, Stoneman's Book Room. Broadcast on 94.9 Main FM and across the nation on the Community Radio Network. All aboard. Welcome to The Quiet Carriage. I'm Paul J. Laverty, broadcasting from Jaja Rurung Country on Castlemaine's 94.9 Main FM and across Australia on the Community Radio Network and sponsored by Stoneman's Book Room. Today on the show, we're going to hear excerpts from two new novels, which are out now. Uh, I'm going to hear authors reading an excerpt from their work. And the first up is Bird Bones, which is a novel by Michelle Yeager, which is out now via Glimmer Press. And here is a bit about the novel. How many pieces of yourself could you lose or have stolen or damaged before you become someone else? There is no Vera without Gary, except that Gary is gone. Vera and Gary have always been entwined. They spent endless, sprawling holidays at Corny Point, with Vera's little sister, Emily, always in the shadows. But the umbilical cord that tethered Vera and Gary has snapped. When Vera returns to Corny Point with her cantankerous partner, Oswald, the rubble of her childhood emerges, and Vera finally sees it wasn't always just about Gary. Shifting and swelling like the tide on a remote Australian beach, Michelle Yeager's debut novel reminds us that unobliging women can be the most interesting of all. And here's a bit about the author. Michelle Yeager is an Adelaide-based writer whose work has appeared in various anthologies and journals. She won the Elle Australia 2018 Short Story Competition, placed runner-up in the Ink Tears 2018 short story competition, and was shortlisted for the Hammond House 2019 and Aesthetica 2020 short story prizes. And Michelle has a PhD in creative writing from the University of Adelaide. And Bird Bones is her first novel, which is out now via Glimmer Press. And here is Michelle reading us an excerpt from it. A lone car made its way along the highway, a white station wagon weathered and worn, carrying two people inside. Above, a clear blue sky stretched out, and alongside ran bone-white wheat paddocks bleached by the summer sun. What a beautiful sky, Vera had said when the journey began. But hours later, looking out of her window, the sky seemed to her oppressive in its perfect monotony, its brilliance only intensifying the glare of the land. Inside the car, the air conditioner struggled and Vera felt as if she was slowly being baked alive. She wanted to wind her window down, but knew this would be met with resistance, with a curt reminder from Oswald that the air conditioner was on. And even though she knew that this was true, knew that should, should she open her window, she would simply be greeted with a warm, sickly wall of air that would take her breath away. Still, she just wanted to check. Vera moved her hand towards the button on the side of the door. Oswald... Without a word, flicked the child lock on. She sighed. The air conditioning is on, he said, but it's not doing anything. Well, you'll make it worse if you open the window. Just leave it. But it's so airless. And look. She moved forward to reveal her dress, transparent with sweat, sticking to her back. Not long now, Oswald drummed his fingers against the steering wheel. They continued in silence. 
Vera looked over at him, studying his profile while his gaze was fixed on the road. His nose and cheekbones were clear-cut, deft lines hewn into a face that she noticed with some satisfaction had become fleshier, almost bulbous in areas. His chin was beginning to consume his neck. Age, she thought, was beginning to catch up with this golden boy. His fleece-like hair, flecked with grey, looked oily and limp. Like his skin, it had lost its youthful vitality. Too much drink, she reflected, and smiled. What are you smiling about? Nothing, she said, still smiling. Just smiling. You must be smiling about something. It can't be nothing. Happiness. I'm overjoyed to be spending this time with you, my dearest. Oswald frowned. His brow darkened. Can we stop in Yorktown, Vera said, changing the subject. There's a bakery we used to go to as kids. We? We did not. You know what I mean. Emmeline and me. Emmeline and I. Vera took a deep breath. Whatever. Can we? He shook his head. We're making good time. Good time for what? You know, for getting there. Vera threw up her hands. And then what? What are we going to do with all the extra time we've accumulated? Unpack, relax. He shrugged. You know, stuff. Stuff? What stuff? What stuff is going to be impeded by getting there half an hour later? Jesus Christ, does it matter? It's too hot to go to the bakery anyway. We can go tomorrow. Tomorrow was too late. It was tradition to go on the way, and Vera wanted to see if it was still there, still the same. If it was just as she imagined. Would the butter-haired woman still be serving? Could she still order the chicken sandwich and Farmer's Union classic chocolate like she always had? Soft white bread, chopped chicken doused in salt and pepper, finished off with crisp iceberg lettuce, squashed down, sliced, wrapped in white greaseproof paper and slipped into a brown paper bag. Vera could almost taste it. Almost feel a pair of ice blue eyes watching her intently. Come on, Vera, give us a bite. But it was not to be. Why had she asked? She should simply have told Oswald, firmly, we are going to the bakery. That's what we're doing. No ifs or buts about it. I hate you with a capital H, Vera thought, and picked at a cuticle. Don't do that. Don't do what? Pick at it like that. Can if I want to. Vera picked harder. It began to bleed. See? Now it's bleeding. She glared at him. Thanks for the update. Oswald shook his head and laughed. The wound began to sting. There are bags piled in the doorway. A blockade of toys, clothes, food, toiletries, wine and two cartons of Escort Red. The essentials. All barely contained on the drive over and now spilling across the floor. The pungent smell of vinegar, the only casualty, mixes with the smoke from the women's cigarettes. Annie and Sue, friends since the third grade, are the smokers. Both in long dresses, sergeant-like, with their shoulder pads, cutting edge with their matching perms and frosted lipstick. Each has double trouble watching them attentively. Two girls stand rigid in the centre of the room, two boys slouch on the sidelines. Of the girls, one is six or seven. The other is three, maybe four. One thin and tall, two tall, two thin, flame-haired, a burning match in a pink dress. The other is small and plump, soft and sweet, a marshmallow in a yellow dress. 
a matchstick and a marshmallow. Vera and Emmeline, Annie's brood. Annie has the larger shoulder pads. Her perm is the more austere. The boys, Gary and Dave, have their eyes on the girls watching the performance. Sue, their mother, smiling hard, smiling so it looks like it hurts, watches the boys, cigarette gripped firmly. Two boys, two girls, two women. Here they go marching two by two, hurrah, hurrah. Everyone named and accounted for. The girls cradle dolls, babes in pink and yellow like their owners, bribes for good behaviour. Emmy's is her miniature. Look, possum, I managed to find one just like you. Golden-haired and green-eyed, Cinderella in the making. But not Vera's. There were no red-haired dollies, Emu, but see how pretty she is with her dark curls. No black-eyed gingers, baby Emu girl. She's Snow White, see? Bow lips and sapphire eyes. She's a fairy tale princess. Puff, puff on the cigarette. The girls smile at their mother. Thank you, they say. One almost expects them to curtsy. They're being so gracious. But they don't. They just stand and wait. The smaller boy, Gary, snorts. His mother slaps him across the head. Vera's dark eyes lock in on him and her mouth twitches. She feels tightly wound. A jack-in-the-box waiting to spring, waiting for Annie to give the word and set them free. And, on cue, when Vera is fit to burst, go play, Annie says. They are released. Off they go, jumping over the barricade. Vera fleet of foot in front, Emmeline at the back and the boys between. Stay out of trouble, says Sue. Walk, don't run, Annie yells, but it's too late. They are scattering, the game has begun. Vera flies around the corner of the house and comes to an abrupt halt. There's Annie, bent over, inspecting something on the ground. A wisp of smoke curls up out of the top of her head. Gary skids to a stop behind Vera. She puts a finger to her lips. Dragon, she whispers. You are listening to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM and the Community Radio Network and sponsored by Stoneman's Bookroom. And the reading we heard there was Bird Bones, out now via Glimmer Press, by the author Michelle Yeager. That was her debut novel. Next up, we're going to hear uh, another reading, and this is another new novel, and it's by the author Alan C. Jones, and it's called Her Death Was Also Water, and it's out now via Midnight Sun Publishing. And here's the blurb from the book. A mixture of apocalypse, high seas adventure, and other worldliness. Her Death Was Also Water tells the story of seven people trying to survive in a small boat in a world completely transformed by an ap- ap- apocalyptic flood. Haunted by entwined pasts, the characters must voyage from a small Midwestern town through a world that seems increasingly fantastic. Each will face their past, and some will die, and the boat will even float through the miraculous, but only 15-year-old Charlotte, Charlotte will discover that death is not always death. Sometimes it is also water. Virginia Woolf's stream of consciousness meets Jan Martel's magic realism as a young woman discovers a sense of adventurous possibility in a world that has taken nearly everything from her. 
And here's a little bit about the author, Alan C. Jones. He is an award-winning writer from California. He has lived and taught in Spain, Mexico, Korea, China, and presently serves as Associate Professor of Literature in Norway. He earned an MFA in Poetry from the University of New Mexico and a PhD in English from the University of Louisiana. His work appears widely online and in print. And his novel, Her Death Was Also Water, is out now via Midnight Sun Publishing. And here is Alan C. Jones reading the opening part of that. Her Death Was Also Water. Prologue. The pre-dawn sea lies glass flat, save for wandering gusts of wind that scallop the water, then leap up to snap the sails tight, like a series of tempestuous but easily distracted children. A blood-orange glow seeps over the horizon, staining the twilight in the east. It still surprises Charlotte, the way the planet rolls on doggedly toward the sun, ignorant of its own complete transformation. Here comes the morning, she thinks, as invincible as ever. In an hour, Charlotte will arrive. She sets the autopilot, clips herself in, and checks the sky. Nothing but a ragged flock of cumulus clouds dragging their tails as they scurry toward the horizon. The only danger now is fatigue. For three weeks, she has barely slept, her voyage forcing her to use the restricted lanes where destroyers will run through a small boat like hers as carelessly as if it were a stray piece of driftwood. Charlotte allows herself a memory of the time before. Returning to her first day of high school, the new kid in a small town, arriving late to first period, the room is musky with deodorant and hairspray. Blank-eyed teenagers turn to gawk at her, their desk legs shrieking against linoleum. A girl comes in behind Charlotte, also late. A tall, blonde girl who smiles like she's just found a new set of teeth. She drops her enormous duffel bag to the floor, body slams her backpack, then charges Charlotte as if she might plow right over her. Let's get this over with she says, holding out an elbow. Charlotte examines the elbow, surprised to find a half-moon scar, dark, against the girl's sun-kissed skin. The girl links arms with her, disregarding her scowl, and pulls her to the front of the class, her hand lying firmly over Charlotte's. We apologize for being late, she says. We were both very busy. The class titters and shifts in their chairs as uncertain about this inexplicable adoption as Charlotte. Those students' faces are nothing but smudges now in Charlotte's memory, but she can still feel the pressure of Julia's hand over her own, the surprise she felt that someone this beautiful could also be kind. Fifteen years ago, the world ended, and Charlotte lost Julia. In the chaos of rescue and relocation, she found herself on a ship without her best friend. They were both on the list, but Julia was not there. Charlotte searched the decks methodically, sure Julia was in a bathroom somewhere or had fallen asleep in a quiet nook. When Charlotte couldn't find her, she argued with everyone, 
sailors, nurses, even the surly captain, demanding they turn back. Thousands are lost, they told her. Millions even. As if this were an answer. She found her way in the new world, working as a cleaner, then a cook, then learning to sail, and finally getting her own rig. In 15 years, she has circled the globe twice. She looks down at the years etched into her palms. She is 30, but her hands look 60. A groove rings her index finger, a slipped cable nearly severing the final knuckle. Lightning once smashed her bow like a hammer. She has been washed overboard three times, and she has left two boats on the seabed. The sea is violent, unpredictable, and has taken nearly everything from her. But for 15 years she has slept upon it, taken whatever food it deigns to offer, and come to find the deceptive solidity of land so unfamiliar it gives her vertigo. Three weeks ago, a message from Julia found her. Memories of the past washed over her so intensely it was like slipping underwater into the world they left behind. Julia was as excitable as ever. We have little rain and less soil, she wrote, but the real challenge is to keep people's spirits up. She then spent a half page describing a vertical irrigation system in such detail that Charlotte could have built one. I call it the plant skyscraper, she wrote. Julia finished the letter in a way that signaled many more letters lost at sea. As always, she wrote, if you actually get this, here are my coordinates. Charlotte told herself not to get her hopes up. The trip was dangerous, and there were no guarantees Julia's outpost would still be there. Even now, after nearly capsizing twice, with the voyage nearly done, she tells herself to expect nothing. Anything could have happened. On the open seas, death can do its work in the time it takes to brew a cup of tea. If you do find her, demand nothing, Charlotte tells herself. Stick to simple things. How are your crops? Where do you get your fuel? How secure is your seawall? Charlotte squints into the blinding shimmer of the sun's first rays, checks her instruments, and verifies that despite the empty horizon before her, Julia's island does exist. Absence is a mirage as common as any, she thinks. She closes her eyes and picks up the ripe scent of hummus-rich earth on the breeze, even imagines she can smell tomatoes. This, of course, means nothing. She has spent many afternoons sailing through the distant scent of pepperoni pizza. She once chased a flock of lambs for hours, their bleeding sharp as screams, and late one evening the sky thickened with spiders, each sailing its own long filament of web. The imagination grows infinite out here, she thinks, though the spiders coated her boat in a blanket of gossamer, quite real in the end. A dark strip of shadow appears on the horizon, just left of the rising sun. Out of habit, Charlotte checks the waterline through her scope and finds a line of small white houses on the bluff, well clear of the tide. There is a good harbor with a breakwater and terraced fields on the hillside. Julia has reason to be proud. I will tell her this, Charlotte thinks. It will be something to say. Charlotte drains the last of the coffee from her thermos. It is bitter and still too hot to drink, but she drinks it anyway, burning her throat but warming her gut 
Checking the coordinates one last time, she unclips the safety, takes a deep breath, and among the million impossible memories she's learned to carry, she finds Julia tugging her forward all those years ago to stand arm in arm before a class of the future dead. Chapter One Wake up, Julia says, shaking Charlotte roughly. I am awake, Charlotte says. It is late May, Charlotte is 15 years old, and she is, in fact, intensely awake and focused. She's just closing her eyes. This helps her see the dream. It was so vivid that she can pull it up by simply blinking, as if the girl is waiting right behind her eyelids. And so she lies now in Julia's bed, comforter up to her chin, eyes smashed shut, forcing herself back toward the dark ascent that fills her sleeping hours. Nearly every night for the past year, Charlotte has dreamt of a girl in the tower. Sometimes Charlotte is the girl, and sometimes she watches the girl, hovering above her shoulder like a ghost. All night, girl and ghost ascend the spiral stairs. Charlotte has no idea why they endlessly climb, and she always wakes up just when she's sure the open sky will burst from around the next turn in the staircase. She then lies as if pinned under a weight, but her legs go on, painfully restless, racing through her sheets, trying to drag her free. Charlotte has no difficulty interpreting this dream. After her sister disappeared, her parents couldn't face life in Chicago anymore. So they carted her off to Fort Wyatt, a town of 20,000, three hours from anywhere, and now she is trapped here, safe in a tower of boredom and enforced forgetting. Fort Wyatt is a perfect kind of no place, stuck in the past, famous for being absolutely average. Sociologists once flocked here to study this phenomenon, fascinated by a place where absolutely nothing out of the ordinary ever happened. The civic leaders still see the town's lack of distinction as a sign of distinction, believing themselves a living symbol of the idyllic American past. It's a perfect place to escape the world and a perfect place if you think you can stop life from happening. As tower prisons go, it's magnificent. Charlotte assumes that on some level the move was meant to save her parents' marriage. Ironically, they separated anyway. Her father has ended up in a damp apartment, half underground, its crowning feature, wallpaper, the color of urine. The kitchen stove is a death trap, the igniter clicking merrily away as gas fills the room, lighting the moment you bend over to check the problem. Charlotte is now privy to the stink of burnt eyebrow. The outlets try to electrocute her, the door to her room falls off its hinges, and the windows leak, even when it's not raining, which amounts to a sort of miracle of bad engineering. In short, it's an apartment no competent father would force upon his child. Worse is the fact that he loves it. Charlotte's mother is no better. Apparently, when things go wrong, everyone has their own special ineptitude, just waiting to reveal itself. Alexia, always an admirably serious woman, has decided to become chipper. She even uses the word, and each time she does, she pauses, like she knows just how ridiculous it sounds. Or so it seems to Charlotte. The word makes Charlotte think of a woodpecker banging its little chipper of a beak against the trunk, the trunk echoing out in a hollow tuck, tuck, tuck sort of way. A bird like that certainly can't have much of a brain. Alexia's radical optimism is part of reinventing herself, 
Most recently, this fantasy has taken the form of online dating. She's nearly 50, and she's asking Charlotte to help her with some douchebag-ridden dating app. As far as Charlotte can tell, though she loves her parents dearly, they both have failed her. Her father hides away in his low-rent grotto, and her mother diligently pursues rebirth as a teenage girl. The only saving grace in this mess is Julia. Eight months ago, on Charlotte's first day of school in Fort Wyatt, Julia declared the two of them best friends. It was suspicious, as Julia presented neither reason nor explanation, and the suddenness of the decision was questionable. It actually started as a command. Julia turned to her, cocking her bright blonde head like a tropical bird pondering a nut, and saying, Char, we are going to be BFFs. Charlotte prickled at the nickname. The acronym BFF made her want to puke, and who said she even wanted to be this girl's friend? Her scowling only seemed to encourage Julia. As that first day went on, Julia continued treating Charlotte like some long-lost friend. Charlotte assumed it was a joke. She looked around for someone filming on a cell phone. On the second day of school, she arrived ready for ridicule. She was sure Julia would walk by without even a nod. She braced herself, pretending to be very involved with a strap on her backpack, completely unprepared when Julia nearly tackled her, hugging her like they were fellow shipwreck survivors. Day two, Julia yelled. It was so absurd, Charlotte couldn't help but laugh. Clearly, something was wrong with this girl. It still strikes Charlotte as odd. Julia knows everyone, and everyone likes her, so why doesn't she already have a best friend? It is a Friday afternoon, and the two girls are lying in Julia's bed. Their first year of high school is almost over, and the specter of exams has them somewhere between a complete panic and a premature sense of summer ecstasy that threatens to send them directly to the river. Julia scrolls through her phone, and Charlotte finally opens her eyes, letting the dream go. She realizes that if she is going to study all weekend, then she'll need to cart her books from her mother's house to her father's. This itself seems almost reason enough to flunk out. I'm going to shave my head, Charlotte says, trying to disentangle her legs from Julia's. Don't be silly, Julia says, throwing a leg over Charlotte's as it tries to escape, eyes never leaving her phone. I'm serious, Charlotte says. Me, hair, chop. She makes a pair of scissors with her hands and mimics, hacking off her curly locks. A bald head will kill two birds with a single pair of blades, she thinks. It will serve as a rebuke to her parents and also a perfect test of Julia's friendship. After eight months, Charlotte still finds herself a little doubtful. And there we had Her Death Was Also Water, which is a novel out now via Midnight Sun Publishing. And the author is Alan C. Jones. And we heard him there reading us an excerpt from it. And before that, we heard the author Michelle Yeager read from her new novel, her debut novel, Bird Bones, out now via Glimmer Press. And both of these books are out now. And a huge thank you to the authors for providing us with those exclusive excerpts. And that is all we have time for today on The Quiet Carriage with myself as your host, Paul J. Laverty. We are sponsored by Snowman's Bookroom, and you can hear us on Castlemaine's 94.9 Main FM, the Community Radio Network, and all older episodes are available on Spotify and all good podcast platforms. Until next time, keep reading.